Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. I want your psycho, your vertigo shtick. Want you in my rear window, baby, you're sick. Okay, I had no idea that you were doing that, but that was awesome. Filling in for Andy today is Matt of the Pod Wraiths and Still Great Bob podcast. Hello, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And it was really hard not to to make an audible noise during that <laughs> that lovely little little limerick that that Sam just just gave. I, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't prepared for it. So thank I you. I love the dramatic lyric reads. They're they're a great genre of comedy. <laughs> It's one that was perfected by the by by an artist you you both are familiar with, William Shatner. Yes, William yes, Shatner doesn't sing as much as perform. Picture lyrics. yourself in a boat on a river. <laughs> Still my favorite. Oh man! This week, William Shatner. <laughs> so we're talking about Star. This is Star Trek. No, right? we're just going to talk about Star Trek. That's okay. actually what we're okay. doing. Okay, this is Surprise. this is Sam watches Star Trek. No. <laughs> Different podcast. This week, we are doing a Hitchcock theme week. Hitchcock is widely considered the master of suspense and was widely prolific, directing over 50 feature films over six decades in both the U.S. and the U.K., as well as hosting and producing the long-running TV anthology Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I had no idea that that show ran for 10 years. I found that out today. That was very interesting to me. Yeah, it was still um, when I was very, very young. And I think Nick at Night had just started. They had Mr. Ed and the Donna Reed Show and Dennis the Menace. And then at 10 o'clock, for those of us in the Eastern time zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which at that point was, I don't think it had been over for very long, but it was still in black and white. So I know that that theme song is in my head. Can you sing it for us? No, wait. Yeah, that's it. That's not yeah. the Adams Family. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Not to put you on the spot in your own podcast, but yeah. the like the white outline, like a white chalk outline of his profile, his face in profile, and he would like come in from the left side of the screen to fill in the profile, and there'd always be that good evening. <laughs> and then he'd introduce it like Rod Serling did for um, for the Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone, yeah, yeah. And of course, he has one of the most famous profiles of all time, which I am sure we will talk about as we discuss these films. But his films combined have forty six Academy Award nominations, including six wins. But he never won Best Director, despite being nominated five times. I think that that is fascinating. Mm -hmm. We are going to talk about three films that represent three different points in his career, but we will also discuss our personal experiences with his body of work. Since I watched the earliest film, we're going in chronological order here. I will be starting us off by discussing 1936's Sabotage. Speaking of William Shatner. Sabotage. We were just singing that song earlier. What were we watching? It was Star Trek VI, right? Yes. Yeah, which also (laughs) incorporates elements of sabotage. Yes. So it all all comes Star Trek VI, which should have been 
Well, I was going to say it should have been Star Trek Five, but Star Trek One shouldn't have existed either. So really, it should be Star Trek Four. <laughs> it's Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, The Voyage Home, and whatever this one was. The Undiscovered <laughs> Country. <Yeah>. Whatever. <laughs> that would have made, like, if we could just edit a third out of the movie series, that I think would have been better. That would have worked for yeah. you. Yeah. And as I said, number five can be a limited series. A yeah. la Picard. Sabotage. That sounds like another film that Hitchcock made. Yeah. So I actually <laughs> Sorry. with a plot. With a plot that sounds like another Yeah. Hitchcock so movie. this is actually really funny. So we've been I've been wanting to watch a lot more of Hitchcock's earlier work pre-Hollywood. So Sabotage is before he came over to the US. He was still making films in the UK. This was really representative of the first part of his career. And it was really interesting because once I decided that I wanted to do this, we picked out like a handful of his early films that were on the Criterion app to watch. We put them on our film board, which we've started, which has been really fun. And so we've been watching a few of these. And when I was trying to decide which one I wanted to do for this podcast, it was down to this one and Young and Innocent. I looked at the plot summaries for both of them, and I was like, okay, both of these sound like plots he's done before in in Britain, and I'm more interested in the spy plot than the wrong man plot, so we're going to go with this one. But you are right. He did direct a film called Saboteur in 1942, but that was after he moved over to Hollywood. He also directed a film called Secret Agent the same year as Sabotage, which is really confusing because Sabotage is loosely based on the Joseph Conrad novel Secret Agent. So there's a lot of like similar names, similar plot ideas going on around this particular film. And so you mentioned this is not the kind of story that he goes to most, which is the wrong man. And you know, you want to explain why he's well, obsessed with the wrong uh, man? Uh, yeah. And so, you know, the the story, I, I believe this is true. I don't think it's apocryphal. Is of course Hitchcock is British, and so um, not that that really has any bearing on the story. But well, I mean, I think the penal system is definitely different over there, so probably does. But to scare his child straight, Hitchcock's father, you know, did the whole spend a night in jail, see what happens. So Hitchcock was obsessed with the idea of somebody being blamed, arrested, jailed, chased for something that they had not done. And so this comes, you know, into being in his earliest work all the way through to something like North by Northwest, which is the perhaps the ultimate realization of that wrong man. There's also a movie he did called The Wrong Man. He inverts it occasionally. Sometimes it is the right man. And so uh, movies like Shadow of a Doubt play with the idea of, is this person being wrongfully accused or are they, oh gosh, Suspicion, uh, which is another Cary Grant plays with that as well. That one's really interesting because you legit don't know most of the film whether he is being wrongly suspected or not. It is, it's one of my favorites because Cary Grant is playing... Oh, gosh. So we've been watching Inventing Anna on Netflix, and this is very much 
that is the character that Cary Grant is. Like, okay. is he a high class grifter, or is he just genuinely who he is trying to put himself over as? And I won't spoil it, but that is the tension of the movie. Like, he's trying to constantly say. You're blowing this out of proportion. That's not what... No, I'm really just doing this. And it's like, are you really, bro? So that's something that he explores. The, and sometimes the his obsession with spies and his obsession with the wrong man coincide in films like The 39 Steps, 1935. So right. it, is, he, it came out the year before Sabotage. He remade it later when he came to the U.S. to Hollywood. So he made the same film twice. Well, he's done that a couple of he's times. He's done that a couple of times. That film combines both the spy plot with the somebody's accused of murder and has to flee across the British countryside plot. The British countryside. The British countryside. Or, if you do North by Northwest, the American, American countryside. countryside. So this this film, like I said, Sabotage, it's really it was released in the UK, but it was also released in the US entitled Woman Alone. It has a very rare, the coveted position of having an 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I wouldn't say it's the best Hitchcock I've ever seen, but people really, really enjoy it. <laughs> How much of that do you think is like, it's it's easier to have that higher like aggregate score when like it's a less seen like, that's it. I mean, I think it. that that's probably part of it. But when I I was like, oh, it's because it has like two ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, right? Yeah. Actually, it has a fair amount of ratings. Like, okay, it's a little bit more personal. It's a little less scary, although it does have some kind of suspenseful and terrifying moments. It's not what I would call a cozy film, which Hitchcock has done cozy murder before, but it's definitely something that's maybe a little bit more nostalgic for some people yeah that is the only explanation i have for this it's just really funny to me that it has that high of a rating yeah it's like saying ringo is like your favorite beetle it's like my favorite hitchcock is his his pre-american work <laughs> it's, it's the zoe deschanel 500 days of summer answer <laughs> nobody likes ringo didn't you tell me sam when we first you watched do that? not trust somebody if their favorite beetle is ringo you go the other way <laughs> That's not an objective opinion. I've, I've, I've had that experience. It's like, should have gone the other way. You should have known when she said her favorite beetle was Ringo. You should have left. <laughs> so I, I like to like, I probably should put this in the notes, but going off script. So like my previous exposure to Hitchcock before kind of watching my monkey this week and several other monkeys. And continuing that was, I had seen North by Northwest, I had of course seen Psycho, and that had been it. So like, in, you know, diving into, you know, all these these Hitchcock-related monkeys and things like that, I'm trying to craft this kind of, like, master thesis about, like, what, you know, you're talking about, like, the wrong man's trope and theme and things like that. Like, so, like, I guess to both of you as, as being more familiar with the filmography than than i have been to this point like what do you think is kind of hitchcock's kind of thing his like we've talked about the wrong man thing but like what are those all kind of common themes what's his like thesis statement on this is going to sound really like first year university pretentious but whatever on the human condition <laughs> and then how does sabotage kind of 
fit into that or set the like the foundational pieces towards the filmmaker he'd become. So I actually think this is a great way of talking about sabotage because it is so early in his career. And like when you talk about Hitchcock, we were talking about this the other day after we watched Sabotage. We were looking over all the films that he made and you can really divide his filmography into segments, Mm -hmm. not just the pre-Hollywood and the post-Hollywood. His career spans so many decades that at the beginning of his career, he was working in silent film. That is how long this particular person's career lasted. And then when we get to Sam's film, which was his last film, like technology had just changed so much that he was really innovative in the way that he incorporated this stuff. Sabotage has all of the hallmarks of a classic, suspenseful Hitchcock thriller, but at a lower budget and perhaps not having the access to the technology that he would have access to later in films like Rear Window Mm -hmm. and Vertigo. Mm -hmm. So I would say the things that we see in Sabotage, because basically the premise of the film is very simple. The electrical grid in London has been sabotaged. All the lights, all the power goes off for a few minutes and then comes back on. They're really concerned. Uh, and you have to remember, this is 1936, so this is pre-World War II. Uh-huh. They're very concerned about spies and about uh, people infiltrating London from a foreign power, which this group is coded as very German. So you can tell that they're already like worried about uh-huh. Germany as a, as a power in Europe. And they're basically looking at this one guy who they think might be involved in a ring of terrorists, basically, because that's what terrorists were in 1936. They were European, right? And so they're looking at this guy. They have like an undercover cop trying to figure out if this is the guy who's involved or not. This person moved here from the U or moved to London from the US, has an American wife and her brother. They're running a movie theater. So there's these really great Hitchcock more than anyone else knows how to do. And I couldn't think of a better word for it, but like set pieces, like actual work with sets. He just comes up with these really cool spaces for people to exist in. And so you get these really wonderful scenes where their house is literally behind the screen of the movie theater because it's just a one theater setup. So every time they enter their house, they have to actually walk through the aisle of the movie theater. So you see these different films playing in the background. And it's this really wonderful visual set piece. But you have other things, too. You have, like, there's a really suspenseful sequence where a character is unknowingly carrying a bomb and thinks it's like canisters of film and it could go you know that it's going to go off like at a specific time and so there's all these intercuts of him walking in the clock and walking in the clock and you know yes. those different things that happen there's also really great character work the actors in this Sylvia Sidney especially she's sort of the main character she's the wife of the suspected terrorist uh, Mrs. Verloc she does a really wonderful job of balancing someone who is very unaware of her husband's activities, but who sort of is slowly becoming aware that her husband might be involved in this gang. You know, she's got to figure out how to protect her brother, and there's all of this this stuff going on. That's all very, very Hitchcock. I mean, that's suspicion, where someone starts becoming aware that their spouse might not be who they think that they are. So you have like these little hallmarks that you're going to see in later films that he's just starting to explore. 
that's how I'd answer that question in the in the case of sabotage. What did you think about that, Sam? <laughs> you want me to talk about the movie, or do you want me to talk about that question? Because I I have a bit to say. Okay, yeah, you can talk um, about that. Yeah. So I I just while you were talking there, I had to I had to go back and look up a few things because I'm thinking about things that are uh, things that I encountered over 20 years ago at this point when I first started watching uh, Hitchcock films after a trip to Universal Studios. That was also my introduction to Hitchcock as a child, as a thing. So there are some things that are really important to know about Hitchcock over the course of his career, and they might not all play into sabotage. The things that are interesting about Hitchcock are, and that you should always pay attention to, are adaptations. They're most of what he does is adapted, usually from novels or short stories, not always, except in some rare cases. The adaptation is much better than the original. He is somebody who can improve, again, for the most part, on a story. And so one of the things throughout his career is people will bring him things that they think will be good for him to adapt. Alma, his wife, is leading amongst those sorts of people. And as we'll talk about in when we talk about Rear Window and Family Plot, design is something that's really important to him. Uh, his collaboration with Edith Head, which comes out, which I'll talk about a lot more if nobody else does. He, he is, has just like this eye for camera shots, and like so, just knowing exactly where the camera needs to be. And so here's the joke, right? This is this is the the lit crit nerd philosophy joke. Okay, when I say Alfred Hitchcock is interested in design, I'm talking about design as in his eye for you know, mise-en-scene, camera shots, his work with Edith Head, but I'm also talking about Dasein, which is the philosophy, the German, I think it's Heidegger, of existence. It's an existentialist Dasein, you know, uh, and that's, it translates into existence. And so it's that, using that obsession that he has with, you know, being... Uh, wrongly accused, the obsession he has with the blonde woman, the upset, just the upset of obsessions that he has along with his eye, you know, for, you know, setting up a scene with cameras and as I said, you know, mise-en-scene and, you know, design translates to being there. And so he creates this sense of you're in this. You know, so even a movie that you know Rear Window is not one of my favorites, and we'll talk about that later, but you are in that room. You are hot and sweaty along with those people. And so you can see it even in, you know, sabotage, as you say, you know, with with this this feeling of this this cramped living behind the movie house, this person who doesn't really know the person she's married to. You could see it early. Yeah. What I love about Hitchcock a lot of times is that he knows with just a very, very few well-placed camera shots and very small like moments of dialogue, you can know everything you need to know about a character. He does this in a lot of his films, but in Sabotage, there's this scene 
where very early on where Mrs. Verloc is talking to her husband, just with a couple of glances, a couple of just like read between the lines dialogue, you know that she married him so they could she could be financially secure with her brother, who is like a teenager. Right. Like she genuinely cares about him, but you're like, oh, this is like a financial thing. Mm. Like the idea where she's like, oh, well, you've always taken really good care of him. And like, you know, like it's very it's very interesting the way that he is able to do that. I mean, and we we should talk about his somewhat tenuous relationship with actors. But he, you have to admit that he does bring out a lot of the best in the actors that he works with as well through perhaps some not so great methods yeah and and not to like at the risk of kind of like flattening very real you know kind of kind of issues to to make a a kind of broader point but like i do think especially when you consider that like hitchcock was so prolific and worked in so many decades as as you kind of said he really kind of represents both the best and the worst of kind of like this industry and 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 this hollywood wood machine and kind of i think a lot of the abusive practices in which that are unfortunately kind of commonplace too where it's like you have this this great art product but it's like at what price right right and you know that's really interesting this week because we've been because of the academy awards you know people are talking about but we're okay with harvey weinstein but we're okay with roman polanski yeah Hitchcock never comes up in those discussions, but then again, I don't think anybody's asked Tippi Hedren how she feels about that either. So, in my mind, Hitchcock is one of the original auteurs, as we understand auteur as a concept. And unfortunately, if you occupy that space, that can allow for some really bad behavior that's excused in the name of art, which I feel like Hitchcock often did get away with in in some of his films. Well, he considered himself I don't know. I don't know. I imagine he considered himself as an artist and an auteur to the extent that an Alma or an Edith Head or a Grace Kelly, Tippi Hedren, any of the Doris Day, you know, any of those folks might consider themselves artists as well to varying degrees. He also famously said that actors are cattle. Right. Although he later said that was a joke. Well, was it? Yeah. yeah. Well, but like one of the actors actually brought cattle on set. Right. Like as part of the joke. Like that's what he was I mean, trying I, to say, I, but it's hard to know. The problem is he's been dead for yeah, a while, so right, it's hard to yeah. like parse. If he said it was a joke, I think in his imagination that was true. But then right. all of a sudden, you know, every so often you have sentient talking cows like Jimmy Stewart right. and Cary yeah. Grant, you know. Lisa Mo. We do know that he had more, his actresses, the blonde women, had more of a problem with him, of course, than the the, the male actors like Jimmy Stewart. So that's definitely something we that we We did not can... watch Marnie this week, but boy, that's going to be an oh, experience gosh. when yeah, I finally see fun. that one. So just to wrap up things on Sabotage. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we talked on. about, are we talking about a, a, a film from 1936? No, it's Whoops. okay. I only have a couple more things to say. I thought this was a really fun film. Again, I don't think it's his best work, but you can really see a lot of the things that would blossom into what's considered like the height of his career. I also wanted to mention though, because he does have like this set piece of the movie theater, it allows him to do some really fun things with film in terms of like having different films on in the background. 
And there's this really wonderful moment, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna spoil it in terms of like what happens beforehand, but somebody dies. Not gonna say who. It is a Hitchcock film. Somebody's gonna die, right? So somebody dies and a character sits down in the in one of the movie seats to kind of process the death. And there's a film playing, and it's actually a part of the Disney short Silly Symphony Who Killed Cock Robin, which came out in 1935. And Hitchcock actually credits Disney in the opening, like animation provided by Disney. And it's really interesting because the way that that scene plays is that it's just a it's just a silly short that Disney did, right? Amongst probably like hundreds of silly shorts that they were producing at that time. It has such pathos in the moment because this character is sitting there thinking about this other character, thinking about like having the shock of grief, right? having this like a terrible emotional crisis and you see just this animated thing happening in the background but it also because of the context changes the meaning of what's happening on the screen because it's just a silly slapstick kind of comedy but then because it's placed in juxtaposition with this character's death it takes on a really sinister meaning it's just a really wonderful way that Hitchcock takes something that's for children and makes it really creepy and scary, but also really like emotionally charged at the same time. The other thing that I wanted to say, just the last thing I wanted to say about this film, is that this film is actually, we see a clip of this film, Sabotage, in the Quentin Tarantino film, Inglorious Bastards, because it's how he shortcuts telling us that film made of the nitrate. It's how he shortcuts telling us that it's really flammable, which is an important plot point in Inglorious Bastards. He actually shows in the movie theater the scene where he's like, oh, don't you know nitrate film is really flammable? Even Quentin Tarantino sort of harkens back to this film. This is a good representative example of his early work. No more, no less. I think... If you're somebody who's very interested in Hitchcock, you know, obviously watch this. But, you know, if you're somebody needing to be convinced about whether or not I should watch more Hitchcock, this is not for you. No, this isn't going to be like the film I give to someone as their first Hitchcock film. Although, if you are interested in this time period, I can also, I highly recommend The 39 Steps and Lifeboat, which is a wonderful film that I watched recently. Those are both top-tier early Hitchcock works, I think. Let's move on. So, Matt, you talked a little bit about your personal experience, how you'd seen, you said North by Northwest and Psycho before. So, tell us... And Rebecca. Right, which is, I think that's, uh, that's such a good early exposure to Hitchcock relatively early in his filmography that's that movie have you had any other encounters with his body of work like in other pop culture or what was sort of your opinion of him before you embarked on this monkey and i know you watched a couple other films too yeah yeah yeah. i you know what i i think it's and i don't even know at this point if this is like an actual quote or if it's like apocryphal apocryphal that I can't speak today but it's that whole like Hitchcock on like surprise versus suspense quote right where it's like you do the dinner scene you show the bottom under the table you know and then play the dinner scene as normal versus like just having like the bomb go off that primarily that that suspense and that that tension and that that evocative sense 
is kind of what I have always like associated with that, which like makes Rebecca like really interesting because it it feels like it's that pivot point, right? Where it's like he's again adapting like another novel. I think the shot composition, especially some of the stuff between the unnamed Mrs. De Winter, but that's the book. Second Mrs. De Winter, but that's the book's fault, and not necessarily Hitchcock's. And um, Mrs. Danvers, like, and just the shot composition stuff is there, but, like, I don't, it trades a lot more in just straight kind of, like, gothic romance, and I think something more of the suspense stuff that comes later, but. Well, no, that's, I mean, it, and, and the, the possible, probable, actual reason for that is one David O. Selznick, right? Yeah. I mean, that's. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really interesting is the thing that presaged his move from Britain to America was Selznick. And, you know, for also somebody famous, who's a famous, horrible person. Well, in right. Hollywood. And I mean, the thing about it is, well, Selznick is a lot like Weinstein. Auteurs need not apply. I will, I will make you and I will break you. Right. I mean, that's very much what Selznick did, in fact, do to many people. Hitchcock, of course, after he leaves Selznick, it bounces around. I mean, he's at he's at RKO. Um, gosh, I think he even does MGM a little bit before he kind of settles into that Universal groove, which he's still not all of his Universal era movies are done with Universal. Like he was very much. I think Selznick is what he was like. Nope, we're not doing that again, no matter what. So it's, it is very much a pivot point for a couple of reasons. I think sometimes when we have constraints put on us, we actually do learn a lot more about ourselves. And, and the thing that's taken away from us is the thing we learn that we're best about, right? It's the thing where you have to have the horrible job to find out what your strengths really are so that you're able to move forward. I don't know. Maybe that's just a trying to be hopeful about life but <laughs> <laughs> well it's 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 like that thing right where it's like how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life to quote star trek 2 again on this oh, podcast boy. here we go <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time like i think there's this really kind of not great and negative kind of like perpetuation of the brokenness in the system and even not just film but i think like kind of capitalism in general to get on my soapbox a little bit here where it's like you need to suffer for great art Mm -hmm. right like that whole like you know i am going to i am an auteur i am an artiste i am going to you know put all of my my actors and my tradespeople and things like that like through hell to come out with this like great masterpiece and like one of the things like as i dig deeper into hitchcock that like sends out to me and that I really enjoy is the production design, right? And kind of like, obviously there's like a meticulous scenario that like you could probably compare to someone like David Fincher, who's like, you know, making moves now, that kind of perfectionist streak. But like Hitchcock or Fincher or whomever, like they don't do that alone. And it's just like, I don't know, I struggle and I have this whole push and pull with like a tour theory, like as a thing, because I think it definitely like works within kind of, you know, Hitchcock in like, this period where the studio system is still kind of thriving and like, you know, you have folks like Preminger, Otto Preminger being like another one kind of contemporary where they feel like, even though they're part of the studio machine, they feel like of a work. Auteur 
theory just kind of flattens out all the other kind of contributors and things like that in the artistic process and it's like also not great bob i mean that's the reason why it's 1941 right i date things are it's 2022 well i I, i'm thinking about the tension between casablanca and citizen kane which are movies that were made around the same time one of which is made by the quote-unquote ultimate auteur the auteur who was so good at being an auteur they never let him be an auteur again (laughs) <laughs> and subsequently, you know, mistake, because that's now seen as, quote unquote, the greatest movie of all time. You've got somebody who who wrote it, starred in it, directed it, did everything. If you were going to make the case about auteurism, you would point to that. But then the, quote unquote, second greatest movie of all time made at the same time was directed by a dude who made like four movies within that 12 month time span and, yeah. you know, it was just cobbled together, you know, connect the dots, paint by numbers movie that was somehow that has just as good of a critical reputation. I mean, that's the tension there, right? And- What's really funny about this whole conversation, and I found this out while I was reading up for this episode, it's in the U.S. that the conversation is usually between Citizen Kane and Casablanca for the greatest movie of all time. But apparently the British Institute of Film Vertigo beats out Citizen Kane. So it is interesting that Hitchcock is included in this conversation as possibly well, and having... and of course, Vertigo is the ultimate Hitchcock auteur right, film. Right, because it follows... Yeah, the other thing we haven't mentioned is his... It's like living the, in his head. <laughs> That's the thing with Vertigo. It is like living in his head, but what's really interesting... And something that I think people who are interested in Hitchcock and as they become more familiar with him, and I guess I wish I had done this right, I feel like I've cobbled together from like half a dozen sources at this point, is to really find out a lot more about his wife, Alma. And we talk a lot about the two tropes, right? The enabler, the helpmeet, or the uncredited, like the Zelda Fitzgerald, you know, like... Did you write that, F. Scott, or did your wife write that? You know, that kind of conversation. Alma fits comfortably to hear her tell it in the middle. She would never shy away from taking credit for anything that she did to help, to enable, to inspire. But then she would also say, he's the genius. It reminds me of Will Smith's first album. He's the DJ. I'm the rapper. Uh, <laughs> she's my wife. Yeah, I'm she, the director. She co-wrote 39 Steps, Suspicions, right. Shadow of a Doubt. Yes. And that is something we say posthumously. I don't think at the time there was that was not a thing that was dreamed of. But the point is that Hitchcock as an auteur would never shy away from telling you how much Alma has done how much Edith Head did, how much, you know, the blonde-headed women, how much Jimmy Stewart, how much Cary Grant brought to it. But they are his films, and he would say that in the same breath. I do have a quote here. When he accepted the AFI Life Achievement Award in 1979, he wanted to mention, quote, four people who have given me the most affection, appreciation, and encouragement and constant collaboration. The first of the four is a film editor. The second is a scriptwriter. 
The third is the mother of my daughter, Pat. And the fourth is as fine a cook as ever performed miracles in a domestic kitchen. And all their names are Alma Revel, which is Alma Revel. Yeah. Yeah. Revel. I was thinking actually of uh, Maria Lucas when you when you brought this up because we never talk about George Lucas's first wife and the fact that Star Dude Wars is apparently trash fire in need of Star an editor. Star Wars would not be a franchise <laughs> without her film editing skills. Is it Marsha Lucas? Sorry, Marsha, you're right. You're absolutely right. So it, it is interesting to have like auteur discussions and like how much do auteurs actually exist or how much is it them working with people who know what they're doing or being able to bring out the best in the people that are in their crew. Cause you're absolutely right, Matt. Nobody makes a movie in a vacuum. Yeah. It's, it's the Peter Bogdanovich Polly Platt thing too, right? Like you look at like Bogdanovich's like early works and, and things like that too, right? Like, and then Polly Platt goes on as a producer to support all these other like first films from all these other like modern auteurs, right? Like Wes Anderson, Cameron Crowe, um, worked with James L. Brooks a lot when, you know, Gracie Films, and it's like, again, posthumously, we kind of go back and, like, and give her the credit, but it's just too bad that we can't give people these, the, 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 the credit they deserve in, in their own times. Yes. It's, it's really funny. The, I, I, when you were talking about modern auteurs, I immediately thought of Tarantino, but more than that, Kevin Smith. Who is an auteur who needed perhaps at some point not to be, you know, like the example of somebody who really was able to do his own thing. And I have nothing but, you know, admiration for that guy. It doesn't mean I want to watch all of his movies, but it's really interesting. Also, you mentioned James L. Brooks and we think about Matt Groening as somebody who has this huge cultural imprint, but of course, you know, somebody like Sam Simon had as much to do with The Simpsons as Matt Groening. But if you listen to them on the early season commentaries, they will always say, we wrote this. And then James L. Brooks will call and go, yeah, but you need to do this. And James L. Brooks is a really interesting person. Sometimes you just <laughs> need a really good editor. That's what I'm discovering in my learning about Hollywood and and television and pretty much any kind of art. Like you have to have the brilliant people, but you also have to have the editors. That's very important role. Editors are brilliant too, Tessa. I mean, you get what I'm saying. (laughs) We're going to skip ahead 20 years to Matt's monkey. Matt, why don't you tell us about Rear Window? Yeah. So have you ever watched a movie for the first time? And then as you're watching it, know instantly that like, this is part of your personal canon and like your favorite movies of all time. <laughs> but enough about Vertigo. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's funny Sorry. is my monkey is rear window. As we've alluded to, I also watched Vertigo for the first time this week and I liked rear window better. I feel like, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at Sam on camera and I think we're getting ready to, ready to fight Someone here. has to, oh. I mean. <laughs> Not everybody could like Vertigo best. I mean, come on. <laughs> I, you know I what? Like, like both films. So. I, I did enjoy both. I just think like I get it thematically, and I think like as we a lot of things we've we've been talking about. I think Vertigo is like the most kind of the closest. I think Hitchcock comes to self awareness, especially with some, the Kim Novak stuff and everything else. I just woof that ending. That ending, folks. It like undercuts. Like I get it thematically. But, like, I don't know, that ending, it just... At the risk of over-repeating something, I finally want the chance to say it. It's not great, Bob. 
<laughs> yeah. The other thing I think we should note before we continue is that Hitchcock infamously also had to work around the Hayes Code mm. and had to employ a lot of really honestly brilliant techniques to get around some of the the issues that he had with the the Hayes Ethics Code. I honestly think that the ending of Vertigo is a victim of the Hayes Code. Evil people have to get their comeuppance in the Hayes Code, and so it's... I think based on what you just said, we have officially drawn a straight line from Jane Austen to Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, perhaps. Because some people disagree. They are, of course, wrong. Jane Austen ended novels the way she had to, not the way she would have. That is absolutely true. I think true. they are all fake endings. That's true of like Little Women as well. Right. Though. And a lot of novels that came out in the 19th century. I think there's a lot that has to be said for the constraints that Hitchcock was working around. I mean, you also get the really famous scene in To Catch a Thief where they are legit having sex, but because he couldn't actually sew sex on screen, he had to intercut it with those scenes of fireworks, which is like the brilliant scene from from To Catch a Thief. So it's kind of funny, but it's also like... Also, two words, train... He liked his visual metaphors for sex. That is absolutely true. Anyway, we're here to talk about Rear Window. Why did you love Rear Window so much? So there, there's there, there's a lot to love here. Um, I think it's really kind of 50s studio filmmaking at some of its its best, right? Like when you're looking at like the work of like the crafts and tradespeople. We talked a little bit about production design earlier, but I they literally built. The, on an inside soundstage, this whole kind of outdoor, like, corridor, back garden, square, the titular weird windows, if you will. And then you even have this, like, little peak kind of throughout from the court, from the back courtyard to the front street side across the way. And there's the restaurant and, like, the way it, like, uses sound. And that's something that, that Hitchcock is really good at and does a lot is using the time, the diegetic sounds right around. And it just feels like, Sam, you're mentioning before, you just feel like you are there and it is hot and it is sticky and it just, ugh, it's good stuff. We re- actually rewatched it this week with, with Elise, your, your co-host on Pod Race. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen it in years and I was really struck this time by how much, this film doesn't have a score in the traditional sense. No. All of the music is diegetic. It's yeah. all happening yeah. because there's a piano player, but then you also get a lot of whistling. Or like radio sounds or people like shouting. It's all happening within the film. Everything you hear, the characters can hear too. And it it just really adds to like the cabin feverness of it all of Jimmy Stewart being in that, you know, with the broken leg and everything else in there. I think one of the things that I really like appreciate as like a nerd who likes to go back and, and watch films from before his parents were born <laughs> oh and digging into like movies from the first half of hollywood's first century that was my really bad karina longworth podcast voice um but, but the way that it like <laughs> distills away this kind of magical thinking that we have about the past and i think this is like going back even more broadly about like well lots of movies but i think hitchcock's as well as we talk about you know the hayes code and everything else and the ways he gets around it but rear window deals with such things as sex murder self-harm all through this lens of of voyeurism and then how grace kelly's lisa 
Stella, I can't remember the actress who plays Stella as the insurance nurse working with Jimmy Stewart's Jeff, are enticed into Jeff's stories and like they start criticizing him being the the weirdo creep who like is, you know, watching all his neighbors because he apparently is tired of reading and you know, whatever. I would have I would read books in that that scenario, maybe maybe stream Netflix now. <laughs> but the way that they're then kind of wrapped up in the the mystery and the story and the ways in which we tell stories even about like our neighbors now it's like oh what's going on with them i do know them a little bit i don't know them and it just i have a there's a medieval history podcast called we're not so different and i think it's one of the things that i appreciate about weir window is the ways that like it's what 67 some years old and it's like people are people no matter what and it's like to talk to your grandparents, it's like, oh, no one had sex, and no one, you know, no one did any of these <laughs> things back in the day, and it's like, of course they did, otherwise we wouldn't be here, right? So, it's really this, like, really interesting kind of slice of of life that I think goes on in this movie, and, like, I often, like, have thought about, like, especially when I have lived in, like, an apartment, or, like, in my townhouse and stuff now, if you do that kind of, like, cross-section of like people just living their lives and wondering what they're doing that's what this movie is to me the it's it's a little bit like another movie i watched for the first time earlier this year basic instinct where it's like in basic instinct for hoven's like you like this don't you you little freak yeah yeah i'm just gonna give you like all of this and it's you're gonna be like you know titillated by it and you're gonna hate yourself for it but that's every movie he does <laughs> fair enough fair enough but I feel like Hitchcock's doing that a little bit with Rear Window too, and just the the shot composition, right? And just like the way he moves the camera, and there's that famous image from Rear Window where it's Jimmy Stewart puts on the telephoto lens on his camera, and he's just sitting there. And in the in the corner in the lens, you see the reflection of the apartment buildings that he's watching from across the street. And like, I'm such a sucker for like any good kind of mirror, like lens work, like that, like reflection in film. Also on Pod Race, we at the end of every episode we have our, our thirst section of who we're we're thirsting for on, on the Deep Space Nine episode that week. And while I think the age demographic is very Hollywood in terms of, you know, Jimmy Stewart being like twenty some years older than than Grace Kelly, both Gray Fox, Jimmy Stewart, and Grace Kelly do it for me in this movie. So I d I don't know if it qualifies for my bi- bisexual film canon list on, on Letterboxd, but it gets close. I just want to say, I want to go back to something you that you said early yeah. in, your, in your comments a couple of minutes ago, but I think you really just came back to it here at the end. Imagine, if you will, coming to Netflix this fall, Ana de Armas is insurance nurse. <laughs> <laughs> You'd watch that show, wouldn't you? <laughs> Like, I mean, it's probably. That, it's like, would it be any worse than Ratchet? I haven't seen Ratchet, but probably not. <laughs> well, no, I don't think you have to. <laughs> I have to say that this is this is probably the best squad that I've seen in a Hitchcock film. <laughs> There's a moment by the end because he spends like the first half of the film convincing them that he's not wrong about this suspected murder that he thinks happened. Yeah. In another building, but I like that once they become convinced, they sort of take over the investigation themselves. There's this moment where he's just watching and they both look at each other and they're both like, we should go down there and dig it up. And he's like, 
what? Like, (laughs) it's just this great comedic moment. And Grace Kelly's entrance into this film, like her establishing shot is one of the best entrances of any character into a film I have ever seen. Like, hands down. I really like what you said about voyeurism in this film, too, because there's so much in this film about like how when you live in such close quarters, the inside and the outside kind of become the same. Everybody's like boundaries are sort of eroded when you live in a city like this. The other technical thing that we haven't talked about yet that is a trademark Hitchcock is the way in which, especially in this time period, by this time he had sort of perfected it, he uses the camera to mimic the movement of the human eye. Yeah. The way that he moves the camera around from like, I'm going to look into this apartment and now I'm going to like look into this apartment. And like, it just sort of follows Jimmy Stewart's gaze around everything. And I, I think that that's really masterfully done, but Sam doesn't like this film. Uh, I guess that's, (laughs) that's my, that's my cue. Um, Okay. So first of all, uh, we talked a lot about Alma and Edith head. I also, you reminded me a minute ago to another of Alfred Hitchcock's great associates who he, this one he actually broke up with is Bernard Herman who did the scores for the second go at the man who knew too much. You know, the one with Stuart and Doris day North by Northwest psycho Marnie, but also citizen Kane. And so this is, it's interesting that this film is not that collaboration because so much of it is diegetic. Although I have to admit, when he picks up the phone and near the end and you just have the silence on the other end and then you realize that the rest of the apartment building has fallen silent, there's no noise. That is possibly one of the biggest and most successful mood turns that I have ever seen, like in a film where you're, you feel like your heart just plummets in that moment. So... You know, I you know how I feel about this. I yeah. don't. After rewatching Rear Window this week, I won't say I dislike it. In fact, I will say I like it better than Psycho. I don't. Those are probably two of my least favorites of Hitchcock's because, like, I get it. I get why I'm supposed to like both of them, and I can't say that I disagree with anything you know, that either of you have said about this movie. The things that he does so well in both of those movies don't land for me the way that things in Vertigo or North by Northwest or The Birds or even something like Suspicion, Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt land for me. Like, this is just an instance of something that doesn't work for me. I would never say that Rear Window's a bad movie. Yeah. Because it's not, objectively. Yeah. It is just not one that I like the best. For me, this has all the narrative tension of North by Northwest and all of the technique of Vertigo. So I will go watch North by Northwest and Vertigo and feel happier. Or, well, not happier having watched vertigo that's really not the emotion you walk away with you get what i'm trying to say (laughs) i do have to ask since we've all seen this one of my favorite things that your co-host from still great bob melissa does for most of the films that she watches for wild pretty things her other podcast 
she identifies like her favorite shot of the film. And I think yeah. that this is a film that we need to identify our favorite shot of. Do you have a favorite shot of this film? I mean, it's probably the the image I referenced before with the telephone, like the iconic kind of image yeah. from that. But like there are other like like moments before. I think anything too where like they're watching like from across the street, like when Grace Kelly goes into like the apartment near the end and like you can just feel how like the anxiety and like fear that Jimmy Stewart is having as he like kind of sees her going through. And it's like also like the sequences too, like with Ms. Lonely Heart and having the dinner by herself and like, you know, the different, yeah. But no, it's my one answer is probably that, that one with the reflections. Cause like if you have a cool shot with some kind of mirror image or like reflection in your movie, you will probably make me fist pump, even if it's like not the best movie. <laughs> What's your favorite shot, Sam? I'll give you three. Okay. Okay. So one would be a still image of when he does the flash and there's that orange mm. yes. coating over the screen, but it, yes. but, it, but the aura gets bigger. So you've got the screen and the circle is maybe like covering two thirds of the screen at that point. Like a still right there. Raymond Burr is just so hulking too. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> to grace kelly and pants on the bed at the end mm-hmm. yes yes because i know you're gonna take the first one so yeah. i'll take that one and then three the dog derping out in the basket being <laughs> the dog being lifted and lowered and it's, it's just a derpy look on a dog's face in a basket i'm riding up this <laughs> <laughs> i love all of the shots that you've you've described my favorite is of course the beginning shot of grace kelly just like coming in and kissing Jimmy Stewart, and that's how, just our introduction. How much is that dress worth, Tessa, in that today's dress? dollars? Oh, what did we decide that dress was worth? Oh, it was I like, set you oh, up like you were going to remember oh, that. Oh, like I was going to remember Sad. a number. I think it's 11000 actually. Isn't it like $1,000 or something like that in like $1,954? It's $1,100. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. it's 1100 in $1,954, but we did decide... Okay, Elise actually said $11,601.77. That is how much her dress at the beginning. And worth plus, every penny, plus I tax. say. Plus, plus tax. tax. So that's going to bring you up a little bit. Worth every penny, I Especially say. Especially if you're in New York. My favorite visual gag, because Hitchcock does have a sense of humor, even though he writes these really suspenseful and often, often what turns into horror, especially later in his career. But my favorite visual gag is the way that he kind of implies throughout the entire film that the newlywed couple that moves into the apartment that's just like on the left, that she is basically like, she is basically <laughs> sexing her husband to death. Like, And then he, when they stop, nothing good happens. Yeah, like, like the, the few times you actually see them is when he's like smoking through the window and she's always like, honey, come back here. Like, Yeah. Yeah, she's a very needy bottom. Mm-hmm. It's true. It is. It is. That is what is happening in that apartment. I just, I found that. I don't know. I don't, I think. Somebody has to be. I did not watch this. I, I was not probably old enough to appreciate this the first time I watched it, but I found that very funny this time. All right. Because we always have to ask this question of everyone who comes onto this podcast, Matt, because. This is a list-making and pop culture productivity podcast. We don't get to talk about this very often anymore. What is your approach to list-making and getting to things that have been on your list for a long time? Yeah, so like normally it's like kind of like thematic groupings, right? So like whether it's, you know, anticipation to 
catching up on something because it's related to like something coming out or I, you know, see something that's contemporary and it's, you know, referenced and playing in a lot with, you know, something historically or things like that, I'll kind of get around to it. Um, what'll tend to happen to is if I feel like I'm watching something, I want to watch something new because since I created my Letterboxd account last year, it's just been lists and things like that and, you know, logging my films has been gamified for me and i always want to keep my like breakdown of new watches versus rewatches kind of balanced because you want you know want to rewatch all the things so it's like oh well pick what i'm in the mood for i'll say like oh hey that was really good i enjoyed x and then i like spend some time kind of in in the world of x and you know go back like even recently and i mentioned watching basic instinct for the first time earlier this year that came from watching and really enjoying benedetta and again i had seen several verhovens before but i'm like you know again reading a lot of the the critical responses and how benedetta is also playing in some of the a lot of same things that verhoven does in, in basic instinct so then okay so i'll now catch up on basic instinct now i'm in erotic thriller mode that's why i've I caught up actually before i watched um totally not planning it but before i watched vertigo and rear window for this podcast I was like, okay, I, I'm in the mood for an erotic thriller. We're doing erotic thriller season. And so I watched um, Body Double by Brian, from Brian De Palma. And that is basically De Palma doing both Rear Window and Vertigo, which I didn't realize until I, those were like, I watched those all in a row. So that was also an unplanned thematic grouping. So this was like the perfect episode for you to be on then because you got to watch like some Hitchcock and watch totally. some more Hitchcock. Exactly. Basically. Got to to see how much of a freak De Palma is. But <laughs> <laughs> I meant to mention this when we finished our, our Rear Window segment, but you bringing up Body Double is perfect because I do feel like Rear Window, maybe next to Psycho, because Psycho has Psycho's twist has been done and redone and redone yeah. since since Psycho actually happened. One time shot for shot. Yeah, one time shot for shot. I think that second maybe to Psycho, Rear Window is the film that has perhaps been remixed and adapted and so on. I'm thinking, I haven't seen this film yet, but I've been told like Kimmy has a lot of like Rear Window mm-hmm. type. It does. It does. Setups in it. Yeah. I think there was a really terrible version of it with. Or Disturbia. Shia yeah. LaBeouf. Thank you. Actual human cannibal Shia LaBeouf. Sorry. That was an internet meme song that went around like 10 years ago. Please don't sue us. And there was a really good episode of The Simpsons. Yes, there is an episode of The Simpsons. Where, where that... he does part of his, he lays eyes on Jimmy Stewart and he's like, look, that, that weird headed kid is looking at us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so this is definitely one of like Hitchcock's, even if you are not as big a fan of it like Sam is, it is one of his most like influential. Because we as a society like to watch. That's like what it's like trading in. And it's like, it it does this interesting thing where it's like, that I meant to, to sorry to bring this up earlier in the segment, but like as it plays with voyeurism, it doesn't like it's f- both for for good or ill, right? Because as we're captivated by like whether Raymond Burr's going to get Grace Kelly, we're totally not paying attention to the self harm suicide attempt in like the floor below, right? So it's just right. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot going on in that moment, right? It's yeah. almost like yeah. you don't know where to look. So I just wanted to say before we moved on from that, that I, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, because as you said, we don't talk about 
the pop culture productivity list making thing a lot anymore. And of course, I am like the captain of team list, you know, as we've talked to some different folks and this this new term that I'm becoming familiar with in the past couple of weeks, podcast homework. <laughs> you know, people are keeping up with things and making these things. And, and I just, I'll tell you, it's sad because I'm very, very jealous. This is like, I miss doing this. I miss this because that's how I got to know Hitchcock, right? I was like, oh, this this seems interesting. What what larks? And so let me watch 15 yeah. Hitchcock movies. And and to be honest, the only thing that quelled my interest in things was was one, narcolepsy. That really does make things difficult sometimes. Like I've seen The Lodger, which is one of his early silence, but I really I don't know. <laughs> It's a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. And the other thing, too, is, you know, so going back to this idea of podcast homework and and a community that started to develop between some of our podcasts is like, you know, having that community to really watch and enjoy things and, and talk things over with. And, and, and Tessa and I are kind of a little community on our own, too. But, you know, I, I hear more of this and... I dig it, but you know, part of my job is basically having a fire hose aimed at my face all the time and I can't really do anything else. Like right now, like I'm reading these every single adolescent novel about a trans character and it's like that's great. It's great that there are that many to read. It's great that I have the opportunity to to write about those things and talk about those things. Doesn't Damn, leave a lot of time for you. I want to just yeah. watch more Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, and so it's, it's, I, I think it's great. I, I think it's great. Is, is what I love thing. also about Hitchcock is that you've been watching Hitchcock for like years and years and years. And so have <laughs> I. I mean, I watched my first Hitchcock movies when I was a teenager and we still, I probably haven't even seen half of his work. Like, and the other thing too is we were watching Rear Window. And I, you said something. I'm like, dude, spoilers. And it's like, you saw this movie. I'm like, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> what about me makes you think I'm going to... Re- you know me. Sometimes it's I'm really like watching jealous it for of the Sam first time. Because Sam legit doesn't remember movies that she has seen before. And so watching a movie with her again is like watching it for I, the first time. <laughs> I said at the very beginning of the movie, I made a joke about the cat in one of the first scenes. It was like, good luck, guys. This It's not going to be... You know, who do you think did it? Well, it's not who you think it is, but also it kind of is. <laughs> and I said that having no idea how this film turned right. out. I could not remember. It was just, well, that's what it is, obviously. And Tessa was like, oh, you remember? Like, no, nope. I don't. Nope. <laughs> yeah, that that's one of the fun things about Pod Race with Elise, because we've both seen Deep Space Nine before, but we start every episode basically with whether Elise does or doesn't remember the episode. So it's like we get the best of both worlds because on Still Great Bob, there's three of us. And Melissa, who we mentioned earlier, who's also on the Wild Pretty Things podcast, is watching Mad Men for the first time, whereas Annie and I have, have seen it before. So it's on, on Padres with, with Elise, we get a little bit of both worlds there. So it's great. Nick Hornby talked about this. He has the same affliction that I do, which he says is a gift, right? Because you do get to experience things again for the first time. 
It's nice. I, I'm, I'm kind of jealous of it, to be honest with well, you. Well, you know, ups and downs. Ups and downs. But let's transition to talking about... I won't remember Star Trek Six in three days, so we better record. <laughs> Hurry up. <laughs> let's transition to talking about Hitchcock's last film, and also the last film with this podcast, Family Plot. <laughs> Sam, you had never seen Family Plot I had before. never seen Family Plot before. Okay. Tell us about late career Hitchcock and your experience with that. Late career Hitchcock. Well, friends, after Marnie, things are different. You have essentially Torn Curtain, Frenzy, Topaz, and Family Plot. Torn Curtain... God, I think that's a communism thing. I, I Like a Cold War thing. I honestly can't remember. Topaz is based on a Leon Uris novel, so that's like nothing he's ever done before. Frenzy is a brief return to form. And then Family Plot, his last film from 1976, is a black comedy. And it is very much a film out of time, but also in time. Characters swear. Like, that's weird for a Hitchcock movie. But the costumes are designed by Edith Head, who is a marker of old Hollywood. So I'm finally going to tell you the thing I was going to say about Edith Head. So (laughs) I've mentioned her name like 27 times in this podcast. Edith Head costumed, oh, 431 movies. Wow. Wow. She was nominated for 35 Academy Awards. She won eight Academy Awards, and was nominated for 35. She won awards for All About Eve, Sabrina, Roman Holiday. She was nominated for Catch a, to Catch a Thief, but did not win. She died in 1981, so while she still had about a dozen more projects in her because she worked on that many things, Family Plot was one of her um, final, relatively speaking, films. She costumed Tippi Hedren in Marnie and the Birds. She costumed Grace Kelly in Rear Window and To Catch a Thief. Ingrid Bergman in Notorious. Kim Novak in Vertigo. Doris Day in The Man Who Knew Too Much. So as I said, when you're talking about Hitchcock and you're talking about style and composition, you cannot have that conversation without including her. She, you know, is part of this film... But at the same time, as I said, this is very much a movie from the 70s. And 70s filmmaking, I know I cannot be friends with anybody after this. I don't really like 70s filmmaking aesthetic uh, for some very specific reasons that are hard to articulate. But this movie is Hitchcock trying to adjust to a new time while still trying to do his thing. And I think Edith Head is emblematic of that. As I said earlier as well, Hitchcock is the master of adaptation. This is a film based on a novel by Victor Canning called The Rainbird Pattern, which I've never heard of before. I'm sure there's a reason for that. Ernest Lehman wrote the script. If you've never heard of that name, allow me to tell you a couple of things he wrote scripts for. Sabrina, The King and I, North by Northwest, West Side Story, The Sound of Music, 
Hello, Dolly. So that's your that's your screenwriter here. So again, what a eclectic collection of scripts that is. Right. So this is yeah. This is very much a film from the olds trying to make something new. This film stars Bruce Dern, Laura's dad. So once again, you've got this up and coming or established at this point huge actor who is not somebody you would see during Hitchcock's prime. So it's it's like this film doesn't ultimately work because it's the wrong film made at the wrong time or the right film made by the wrong person. Right. And possibly the wrong country if yeah. I'm being but completely it's, honest. But it's also very good because it's a Hitchcock movie, so of course it is. <laughs> yeah. Tell, us, tell I, us what the movie's about, because I don't think people are as familiar with the plot or setup of this one as they are with perhaps Rear okay. Window. So, imagine, if you will, a fake psychic. A flim-flammer, if you will. Sean Spencer from Psych, but a beautiful woman. And she is conning a rich old lady who reveals that her sister had a secret child that was given away, sent away, so as to avoid scandal. And now later in life, this woman is sad, regretful that she sent her nephew away and needs that nephew to be rediscovered so he can be named heir. This person, played by Karen Black, is, you know, in a relationship with Bruce Stern's character, who's a taxi driver. So they're kind of a pair of amateur con artists. Now imagine, if you will, a professional pair of con artists, thieves, kidnappers, if you will, one of whom is played by William Devane, a much younger and less sweaty, if you've seen 24, <laughs> William Devane. <laughs> I told Tessa, in the 80s and 90s and aughts, if you need like a, a, a mid-major government figure who yells a lot and is always sweaty and veiny, William Devane is your choice. Except no substitute. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really interesting seeing him much younger. But... This this uh, this duo is also a uh, as I said, very much more homicidal, murderous, felonious version of the con artist. So it's it's doubles, and so if you really enjoy the Hitchcock doubling, right? You know, like there's there are the doubles you never see, like Cary Grant, the spy he has been taken for. That's a double you never see. Same thing with Jimmy Stewart's character in The Man Who Knew Too Much. Hitchcock plays with doubles in some really weird ways. Like Kim Novak is then doubled toward the end of Vertigo because Jimmy Stewart's character, you know, does that. Norman Bates is also another person. You know, there all these kinds of doubling. And so he's playing with that here at the end of Family Plot. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that the homicidal kidnapping jewel thief you find out pretty quickly is the long lost nephew. And so like 
hijinks ensue. Good times. If you've seen North by Northwest and the drunkening of Cary Grant, you've seen famous Hitchcock car scenes. This is one of those. Like, there is a great car scene in this movie. Not as good as that one, because what could be? (laughs) But... (laughs) And I guarantee most people, even if they haven't seen North by Northwest, have seen that that gif of Cary Grant getting, like, bourbon, like, poured down his gullet. (laughs) Even if they have no context for it other than that gif. But yeah. There's... They're both drunk in this scene, and, and, um... Barbara Harris, who plays Blanche the psychic, is like constantly like putting her hands on the wheel while while Bruce Stern is trying to drive, and like she gets knocked back in the back seat, and she like kicks him in the head. It's just, <laughs> and he's like trying not to, you know, like James Bond style, drive off a cliff. <laughs> you know, it's just there's some really fun things in this movie, and and it is a it's an interesting story (laughs) it was fun i really enjoyed it it wasn't that good relatively speaking but it definitely had some classic hitchcockian flares and i love i think the thing that struck me the most about this film was the transitions to be honest with you because there's a lot of like there are these two couples and they're kind of like their paths don't really intersect like directly until the end of the film and so there's a lot of like transitioning between the two, but he does it in such a way that it feels like they both exist very close, like on parallel paths that haven't like met yet. And it's just very, it's a really great visual work. This film reminded me of like, honestly, this film to me felt like proto Quentin Tarantino, the way in which it's filmed, the way in which like you have this, like these thieves that are, in the same, like, on a collision course, but they don't know it yet. I don't know. What did you think about the way this is put together? Uh, first of all, I told you you were going to have to do this. What was the thing I turned into a verb when we were watching it? The something somethinging? What was it? I don't know. You're in charge of the <laughs> I don't remember. You know I can't. I don't remember. I do remember that you said during Rear Window that the dog was the dog who knew too much. That's, oh, the, that's, right. that's the one that I remember out of our Hitchcock que watch. Que Pedro. Whatever will be a dog. Uh, so, <laughs> it works. I'm telling you it works. Okay, so, Family Plot is like the Led Zeppelin album Coda. Oh, you're a big Led Zeppelin fan. What do you think about Coda? I haven't listened to it. Have you? No, I was wondering if you knew. That's like <laughs> the last four movies of Hitchcock. Like, you have to be a completist to have kept going after Marnie or in Through the Outdoor. I have listened to Coda. Coda has some really good songs on it. And then also some things that, eh. So how would I describe Coda? Eh. How would I describe Family Plot? Eh. I enjoyed both. Good times. Yeah, I couldn't stop watching it, even though I I actually really hated the ending of it as well. But the really confusing thing to me was the fact that like Hitchcock is a British filmmaker who made films both in Britain and the U.S. and also did a lot of things where he would take like American actors and import them into British films or vice versa. Right. He seems very confused about what nationality these people are because they. <laughs> It, it's in America, 
And all of the actors are American and they're using American accents, but then they'll say things that are really British. Like, oh, well, he met him down at the pub. Or like there's a character that smokes a pipe constantly. Like, it's just like very odd because like I've never seen him mismatch these two nationalities in this way that he's doing in here. And I'm not really sure what the point of it is. Well, but and visually, I thought this movie was really fun to watch. Well, and, you know, at the end of his career, he he did go back to Britain mm-hmm. and then something with like Topaz, which is more of a kind of uh, globetrotting global thing. So, you know, it's again, it just adds to the feeling that this film is unstuck in in time and space. Just a couple other things really quickly. I think this is fascinating. The film was originally called Deception, and then it was called Deceit, and then it was called Family Plot. (laughs) So, that's fun. He was like, wait, nope, I have a pun. The pun has to be the title. (laughs) And so, uh, also, as we mentioned, this is the last film that Hitchcock made. He was deep into production on a film that was also scripted by Lehman called The Short night unlike ai it was not finished by another director that was it it was just an unproduced film and they thought that was a good decision and i question that because they also thought it was a good decision to allow sequels to psycho that's why you don't let studios make decisions kids would you recommend this film to anyone well it's kind of like uh, your film If you want to know more about Hitchcock, you've got to watch the big ones. You watch Rear Window. You watch Psycho. You watch North by Northwest. You watch The Birds. And then you branch out from there with To Catch a Thief and The Man Who Knew Too Much and Strangers on a Train and Rebecca. And then after that, you fill in all the other movies from that time. You pick up Marnie and Saboteur and Shadow of a Doubt. And then, if you're really interested still, that's where you start to to spread out both directions. You see your foreign correspondent, Jamaica Inn. You go back to Britain. The Lady Venuses. Yeah. yeah, and then you go back to Britain in the other direction with, with the last ones, and then you come to Family Plot and something like The Lodger on the other end. It's really kind of a middle-out situation. <laughs> well, I personally look forward to having more Hitchcock on my list because I feel like he will always be on my list until I die. <laughs> oh, every time we watch a Hitchcock film, and this is what I was talking about earlier, it's always like, let's watch 20 more yeah. today. They're very fun to watch. Yeah. How do you feel about the films that you watched? Which ones? You said you watched Vertigo, Rear Window. Did you watch any other ones? Yeah, so I, I watched... Those were like probably like the two newest. I rewatched Psycho. Because I, I basically... There's that 4K set that they, they released a year and a half ago, two years ago. So it has Vertigo in it. It has Rear Window. It has Psycho. And then it has the birds as well. And I also... um found on sale like to catch a thief because elise said i needed to see it and i'm excited to to watch that as well so yeah basically like love grace kelly and grace kelly wearing fancy clothes that's that's a film for you and i mean carrie grant you like really can't go wrong that great transatlantic of a time period sense of masculinity that is carrie grant 
so no i'm i'm very much in my like hitchcock era like musically i've been actually pretty much since i listened to the discussion on veruca salt i've been in my um grunge era (laughs) reliving my grunge era so i'm in my whole phase again um so that's where i'm at musically right now but yeah i think i'm definitely in my (laughs) my my hitchcock era there so going back and Again, I want to rewatch North by Northwest because it's been a couple of years since I've seen it. And then, you know, dig deeper. And it's been a minute since I watched Rebecca, too. So, yeah. No, where am I with Hitchcock? I think he's probably going to be one of my highest directors on my litter box directors this year because I've been Hitchcock pilled. So. <laughs> Next week, Sam talks about the flight attendant and I talk about Free Guy. But before we go, Matt, what are your plugs? Where can people find you online and in their headphones? Yeah, so if you want kind of more of me in general, you can find me on Twitter at at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can catch me talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine with my friend Elise on The Pod Race. That's P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. And we're almost done at the time of this recording, season two, so we'll be starting season three of DS9 shortly. And I'm also talking about Mad Men a little less frequently, kind of have a, as as we can record, uh, schedule every two weeks-ish there on Still Great Bob. That's exciting. Sam, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at Sam underscore Morris 9. You can also find Sam on our second weekly series, Sam Watches Star Trek, which we are just about, I think when we record this, about to release the first episode of the Kelvinverse trilogy. So that's exciting. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club. My friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at nanny's book club and on instagram at nanny Ogg's book club send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind find us on twitter and instagram at monkey backlog email us at monkey at gmail.com please rate review and subscribe on itunes follow us on stitcher amazon podcasts google podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts Get that monkey off your back.